0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Maintaining Vigilance to Mitigate Cancer Immunotherapy-Related Toxicities in the Emergency Department. Be aware, stay alert, and change your practice. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward kkf860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: I'm Dr. Chris Baugh. I'm an emergency physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I'm joined by my colleague today, Dr. Mark Wad. Dr. Awad is the uh, clinical director of the Low Central Center for Thoracic Oncology. And so he and I actually work together clinically when his patients are seen in the emergency department. All right, so over the next hour, we're going to be talking about What emergency medicine professionals should know about cancer immunotherapies and immune-related adverse events? We're going to spend a fair amount of the presentation talking through several cases that illustrate these principles and then really focus on how you can take the information that you learned today to your next shift in the emergency department to better take care of your patients. And then we'll wrap up with a little synthesis and question and answer opportunity at the end. So we're going to actually start with a bit of a teaser case that will wrap up towards the end of the presentation. But uh, I'm going to present to you a patient that we all who work in the emergency department could easily be seeing in our next shift, which is a 60-year-old with history of kidney cancer. And they're, they're presenting with a few days of fatigue. That's their chief complaint, is they're tired. When you dig into that HPI a little bit more, there's a headache that comes out as being part of their presentation. They've tried some over-the-counter meds. They've tried some NSAIDs, some Tylenol. so you're not getting any better. And otherwise, you, you can't get kind of a, a hit on review of systems around infection or blood loss or other things that you might want to be asking about in a patient with cancer and fatigue. Uh, They're just on an an antidepressant in terms of meds and uh, in terms of active current meds. And uh, I want you to think a little bit about what you might do next in terms of your initial diagnostic workup. What kind of tests would you want to order for this patient? Um, What kind of differential diagnosis are you making for this patient? Are you thinking about infection, anemia, uh, et cetera? And then, based on the results of that diagnostic workup, uh, what are you going to do to treat the patient? What's your disposition for this patient? So we'll move ahead. OK. So we're going to transition now to a little bit of the science behind immune checkpoint inhibitors. And I'm going to hand things over to Dr. Awad.
2: Great. Thank you, Chris, and good morning, everyone. So- We'll first discuss a little bit of background on what immune checkpoint inhibitors are, since we'll be seeing patients treated with these medications frequently in emergency settings. So this is a schematic of what we call the tumor microenvironment. So shown here in this diagram is a tumor cell. Cancers often have a lot of DNA mutations that result in mutated proteins. And these neoantigens, or protein mutations, are presented on the cancer cell surface through the MHC molecule presenting a tumor neoantigen. The body's immune system is often capable of recognizing self from non-self or uh, new mutations that weren't present during development, and the immune system can try to attack the tumor cell, but cancers can often take advantage of some natural inhibitory pathways of the immune system. And here is one such pathway illustrated. So, the uh, tumor cell can make this ligand protein called PD-L1 that can bind to a receptor on T cells called PD-1, and this serves as an inhibitory signal to the T cell. It tells the T cell to uh, basically ignore the cancer, to not attack, and to kind of go, go about its way without uh, resulting in tumor cell destruction. These are normal pathways that are present in the body that are thought to regulate autoimmunity and prevent autoimmunity, and cancers can... Take advantage of these natural pathways. And what's important here is now that now we have therapeutics that can take off the brakes of the immune system. And that, that's why these are called immune checkpoint inhibitors. This is a natural checkpoint on the immune system, and we can inhibit this checkpoint. And there are two main classes of medications that are antibody-based that block either the PD1 receptor or the PDL1 ligand. And this results in activation of the T cell and uh, subsequent anti-tumor response resulting in this go-signal to the immune system. There are an increasing number of Im- approved immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, all of these currently are monoclonal antibodies, which is why they end in Mab, M-A-B. But you can see um, many drugs that are anti-PD-1 antibodies, such as nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and simiplumab. There are also pdl one approved antibodies, atezolizumab, avelumab, and dervalumab. As well as another checkpoint called CTLA-4, there's an approval with ipilimumab. So these drugs, um, it's important to have some familiarity with the name since patients will be coming in on a variety of uh, therapies for their cancers. so good to have some uh, way to recognize and categorize these medications so we know what side effects these patients may be at increased risk for. And there are an increasing number of cancers that are treated with these immune checkpoint inhibitors Uh, many of which are shown here. So this includes both hematologic malignancies as well as solid tumors. So we'll see many, many patients with different cancer types that could be potentially treated with these therapies. And there are also an increasing number of combination therapies that include immune checkpoint inhibitors, some of which are also shown here. So these immunotherapies can be combined with VEGF inhibitors such as Bevacizumab, with small molecule inhibitors such as BRAF and MEK kinase inhibitors, can be approved in combination with chemotherapy, with other immunotherapies such as a combination of PD-1 and CTLA-4 or combinations with chemotherapy. And so again, we'll be seeing many patients coming through emergency room settings uh, with um, various cancers treated with a variety of immunotherapies alone or in combination with other agents. And increasingly, we're seeing earlier use of immunotherapy in cancer. So initially, these drugs were approved for patients with advanced metastatic stage four disease after the cancer had grown through prior treatments, and then these therapies moved into the first line setting, and now we're seeing these treatments being approved for use not just in stage four or metastatic disease, but for earlier stage disease as well, with locally advanced disease, meaning more lymph node involvement, as well as for early stage disease in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant settings before or after surgical resection of cancer. So more and more of these patients will be receiving immune checkpoint inhibitors. And this uh, diagram highlights a variety of the immune-based approaches in development for cancer. The immune checkpoint inhibitors are just one small piece of a growing uh, set of therapies that are being developed for patients with cancer. And this can include immunostimulatory cytokines, oncolytic viruses, adoptive cell transfer. So this is the field of tumor-infiltrating lymphocyte uh, therapies or CAR T-cell therapies, cancer vaccines, um, and a variety of other bispecific T-cell-engaging antibodies and other uh, immunomodulatory therapies here. So again, we'll be seeing an increasing number of complex treatments for patients presenting through emergency departments. And the reason why these therapies are so widespread is because we've been seeing improvements in overall survival in a variety of cancer types. And this just highlights here um, improvements in the five-year overall survival rate for cancers such as metastatic melanoma, renal cell carcinoma, and non-small cell lung cancer, which typically and historically had survival rates close to uh, about 5% or less at the five-year time point. So we're making some real strides for our patients with advanced metastatic cancers. So what are immune-related adverse events, abbreviated IRAEs for short? Well, these are different and distinct from other cancer therapy adverse events. So for example, with chemotherapy, we know how to counsel patients on the typical and common side effects and also the time course of when to expect side effects. So for example, we'll discuss a regimen and we'll say that this treatment will cause hair loss in the majority of patients, can cause nausea, uh, diarrhea, and cytopenias, and these side effects can happen in almost all patients. They're somewhat well-described, um, typically affect a handful or a few organs that are somewhat predictable, and the time course of these side effects is well-established. By contrast with immunotherapy, the adverse events can be relatively unpredictable. In fact, the majority of patients do not have serious side effects, which is great for our patients. But when the side effects do occur, they can be uh, variable in terms of which organ they affect. And the time course can be very different from one patient to another. They can happen after the first dose of immunotherapy or can happen after a year or two of immunotherapy or even after immunotherapy has been discontinued. In terms of why and how immune-related adverse events occur, I think this is uh, a growing field and we know relatively little so far as to why these adverse events tend to occur. We know that patients with pre-existing autoimmune disease or a predisposition to autoimmune disease can be at higher risk, but many patients without any autoimmune history can develop very serious and severe autoimmune toxicities. There can be some shared antigens between cancer cells and normal organs, which is why the immune system can attack both cancer as well as non-cancer tissue. And with combination immune therapies, such as PD-1 plus CTLA-4 treatments, we can see a higher rate of immune-related adverse events as well as uh, more advanced or higher grade toxicities here. And it's really important to know that these immune-related adverse events can really affect any organ system because the immune system circulates everywhere. And shown here are all of the uh, potential organ systems that have been described in terms of toxicities, So we can see endocrinopathies due to inflammation of the thyroid gland, the pituitary, the adrenal glands, new onset diabetes from autoimmune destruction of of the islet cells of the pancreas. We can see inflammation to the lungs causing pneumonitis, hepatitis of of the liver. We can see renal dysfunction from nephritis. um, Joint pains and and musculoskeletal side effects can be more common. We can also see some hematologic toxicities due to autoimmune uh, anemias, for example, Rash and itching can be quite common on these immunotherapies, but these can uh, develop into more serious cutaneous toxicities. Colitis is very important to recognize because this can present with uh, diarrhea and abdominal pain, uh, which can also be due to uh, non-immunotherapy cancer treatments like chemotherapy, but the mechanism and the management of colitis due to immunotherapy is very different than diarrhea due to uh, more standard cytotoxic chemotherapies. We can also see serious effects on the heart. These are rare, but we can uh, sometimes uh, detect myocarditis or pericarditis. There can be inflammation to the eyes or even neurologic inflammation presenting with uh, meningitis or encephalitis as shown here. So when do these immune-related adverse events occur, and when might you encounter patients with these adverse events in the emergency department setting? Well, it's really important, again, to emphasize that these Adverse events can happen really any time following immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy initiation. It can happen again after the first dose. And this is when a patient may present to the ED or the incidence and the onset can be delayed where um, patients can be doing very well on these immunotherapies for many months or even years without serious toxicities and then we don't know why one might be triggered after a year and a half on therapy, but patient may present to the ED at that setting uh, for months to years after immunotherapy initiation. And sometimes even after stopping immunotherapy, there can be a somewhat delayed onset of toxicity. So to summarize this section, it's um, important to know that these immune checkpoint inhibitors are uh, uh, expanding class of cancer immunotherapies that block T cell inhibitory signals and that the landscape of use for these drugs is expanding rapidly with uh, increased number of patients uh, with different types of cancer at earlier and earlier stages receiving these therapies, and that immunotherapy toxicity differs from that of other cancer therapies in that it's more inflammatory in nature and it can affect any organ system and can occur at any time after treatment initiation or even after the last dose of immunotherapy. And so now we'll talk about how to recognize, triage, diagnose, and initiate treatment of immune-related adverse events in the ED. And this is where multidisciplinary efforts are uh, so important um, for the care of our patients. And very often, our emergency medicine colleagues will be um, the first ones to recognize and uh, detect and initiate therapy for these patients. And so you can see here in terms of how do we anticipate uh, adverse events um, detect them with a diagnostic workup or with a history, and how do we initiate treatment? And we'll be touching on this um, in some of our cases that we'll, we'll get to in just a moment. And how do we um, initially treat immune-related adverse events? So a grade one IRAE is typically very mild. The patient may be asymptomatic. We might only see something either on an abnormal lab or um, some abnormal abnormality on a scan, such as a very faint Um, localized, say, ground glass opacity in the lungs that could represent a very early lung inflammation. But if the patient is otherwise doing well and asymptomatic, we can uh, consider continuing the immunotherapy with supportive care and careful monitoring for the worsening uh, of these side effects. But as the grade increases and as patients develop more and more side effects with moderate or grade two immune-related adverse events, we would typically hold the immunotherapy and initiate corticosteroids, which is the first line of treatment for almost all of these immune-related adverse events. And typically, that's a lower dose of corticosteroid, uh, about prednisone up to one milligram per kilogram per day or uh, its equivalent. And then for severe or grade three to four immune-related adverse events, we would uh, likely permanently discontinue the immunotherapy and often never re-challenge patients with it in the oncology clinic setting. But in terms of management of the immune-related adverse event, here's where we would use high-dose corticosteroids, such as prednisone, one to two milligrams per kilogram per day or equivalent. And these immunosuppressive medications often have to be given for many, many weeks at a time and then tapered very, very slowly. If we use steroids um, and stop them too quickly or taper them too quickly, very often we can see a, a subsequent flare after an initial improvement in the adverse event the um, IREE can suddenly uh, flare back up again if we discontinue steroids too quickly. It's um, less common, but there are cases of steroid refractory immune-related adverse events, so cases where we either um, do not see an improvement with high-dose steroids or we see an initial improvement, but whenever we try to taper the steroids, the uh, inflammation starts to um, Uh, appear again, and there we have to consider using other agents such as infliximab, mycophenolate mofetil, IVIG, or other agents depending on the toxicity. And this is something that we work with um, um, in conjunction with our colleagues, say, in pulmonology or hepatology, GI, um, and other subspecialties when we find ourselves uh, having a difficult time managing these IRAEs. And so with this, we'll um, discuss some cases uh, of immune related toxicities that we encounter commonly in our clinics and
1: in the emergency department settings. Thank you, that was a tremendous review. It's gonna help us also think through this series of cases uh, that we're gonna step into for the next part of the presentation. So let's circle back to the patient I talked about about 15, 20 minutes ago. This is our 60 year old patients with uh, kidney cancer here with fatigue for a few days, also has all some mild headache, And so in terms of how we can apply what we just learned, um, since this is a patient with a cancer history, we kind of asked about their treatment course in the past. And we find out that the patient did receive an immune checkpoint inhibitor about four months previous. So now we know, based on what we just heard, that there are some immune-related adverse events that this patient is at risk for with that kind of treatment history. And so looking at the patient's exam, uh, they're actually looking like they could be pretty sick. They're afebrile, but they're a little tachycardic, have a very soft blood pressure, um, respiratory rate's up a little bit, but sadding just fine. And uh, it seems like a little bit uh, kind of a sad affect, but not suicidal. And then the headache is mild. It's not worst headache of life. Um, they're not looking kind of um, like they have a meningitis. They're not having... Uh, uh, meningismus, uh, non-focal neuro exam, um, and we're going to move on to what we get in terms of testing. So we're going to do a, a non-con head CT on this patient. We want to make sure there's not bleeding or new mass that could explain headache and fatigue. Certainly, in someone with cancer and you know, a brain metastasis could be in the differential as well. And then in the labs. We see a, a CBC that's pretty unremarkable, so you know this is not anemia. Uh, but then the CHEM-7 is pretty abnormal, right? We see hyponatremia, hyperkalemia. Um, and so we're going to take that into consideration as we move forward. Um, I mentioned the uh, differential we probably had in our head. Um, you probably didn't have number three and four in your differential when you first heard about this case. Um, but, but maybe you do now, and hypophysitis is the pituitary inflammation and dysfunction. So certainly that can present with a headache and, uh, and a similar presentation. So moving ahead in terms of how to manage this patient. So when you get those labs back, you're, you're probably realizing that the patient's not going to go home. You probably realize that on your initial exam with the, the soft blood pressure and, and the tachycardia. Um, And you're calling the patient's outpatient oncologist at this point to have a conversation. And uh, typically, uh, if you're at a hospital that has an inpatient oncology service, you're probably admitting to that service. If you're working in a community hospital that does not have inpatient oncology care available, you're at this point calling a transfer center or an access center to get a patient shift off to the, the, the hospital, the tertiary care hospital that does have uh, an oncology service um, that also might need some subspecialty consultation with regards to uh, endocrine, renal, et cetera. Uh, and this is a, a good example of a type of, uh, of degree of severity uh, of illness to where you are going to start systemic steroids. And so, uh, as Dr. Awad mentioned, prednisone would be indicated in this case, um, and then you know, the additional labs that are at the bottom here are probably going to be checked by the inpatient team who takes over for the patient, especially maybe in the next day morning cortisol level. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit now about the adrenal insufficiency, pituitary dysfunction that you might see from uh, immunotherapy treatment. Um, so, in terms of a conversation with the outpatient oncologist, you know, you get calls from the emergency department all day and night for your patients who are being seen there. What kind of information would you be pulling from the emergency physician and how would you be advising them?
2: I think these are really tricky cases. Often uh, the presentation is, it can be uh, subtle or it can be more significant. And uh, it could also be somewhat nonspecific. So when I'm seeing patients in oncology clinic at Dana-Farber, many of my patients have fatigue, many of my patients have hyponatremia, and the differential can be quite broad. It can be related to uh, dehydration, um, it can be related to GI losses, for example. Um, a lot of our patients do have headache or feel you know um, sad or depressed you know for a variety of reasons so again it 's really important to try to keep a broad differential as to um, the therapies that they 've been receiving or have recently received and to include immune related adverse events or toxicities in the differential and Here we would uh, be narrowing in on. Um, some of the endocrinopathies, and and, uh, here in collaboration with uh, our endocrine uh, uh, consulting physicians, we would try to determine is this more of a a primary adrenal insufficiency due to autoimmune destruction of the adrenal glands themselves, or is this more of a central adrenal insufficiency due to uh, pituitary inflammation and involvement, in which case the adrenal glands may not be the only endocrine organs that are uh, under-functioning, and it may include also Uh, thyroid dysfunction and thyroid replacement. With the uh, endocrinopathies, this is one of the organ systems for which we would um, not necessarily expect to see full recovery of the organs with immunosuppression like prednisone. And very often our patients would need to uh, receive a replacement hormone going forward, such as a patient with uh, adrenal insufficiency. They may need to be on some dose of replacement steroids going, going forward uh, for, for the long term. But it's really important to keep this in the differential and to talk through some of the potential uh, causes for this presentation when we're uh, managing patients together with our emergency medicine colleagues.
1: And I'm curious on the hypophysitis. You know, MRI is very helpful in, in confirming that diagnosis. MRI is also something that's challenging to get in an expedited way from the emergency department. So we usually reserve Uh, MRI for, you know, question of posterior circulation, um, acute stroke, cord compression, etc. And there are some community hospitals that don't even have, uh, you know, routine access to MRI that can maybe get it in a day or two. Um, What's your take on the timing of MRI if you have a suspicion for hypophysitis?
2: I think it's important um, as we're narrowing in on uh, the cause for this patient's presentation to determine if this is uh primary adrenal insufficiency or a hypophysitis, but very often you can get a sense of this uh, initially with some of the laboratory evaluations. So if you uh, check an, a morning cortisol level, for example, and also you check an ACTH and you also look at thyroid function, that might help point out whether this seems to be more of a central process or a, um, a process contained to just the adrenal glands alone. And so I, I think there, um, Again, this is important to recognize to keep in the the differential, but um, I think needing to wait a day or two to potentially get that MRI is is okay and is safe for the patient. And I think during that time, the rest of the workup can proceed in terms of determining the uh, source of the uh, adrenal insufficiency.
1: Excellent. That's very helpful. Um, This next one, just just to close out this case, just a little bit more on the thyroid dysfunction that you might... Um, might see, so we typically send uh, TSH with reflex from the emergency department, um, and, and that might be our initial screen to give a clue to us that there might be some thyroid dysfunction in play, um, and I think some of the maybe depression or mood disturbance that uh, this particular patient was was showing could be related to some thyroid dysfunction. Any other thoughts on Thyroid dysfunction. I think
2: thyroid dysfunction is actually one of the more common adverse events that we see with immunotherapies um, and initially it can actually look like a hyperthyroid picture because as the thyroid gland is getting acutely inflamed by the immune system often there can be a release of thyroid hormone and the TSH can actually initially look uh, low and then over time as the thyroid gland um, sort of burns out then you start to see the TSH rise back up again into the hypothyroid. Level. So this is common, this is uh, one of the labs that I check periodically for patients while they're receiving immunotherapy, really whether they're sim- symptomatic or not. Um, and you can see here some of the recommendations in terms of how to manage hypothyroidism based on the TSH level and, and whether the uh,
1: patient is developing symptoms. excellent let's keep moving to a new case. So now we have a, the, new, the next patient in the next room is, is, is just coming to us now, and now it's a 62-year-old gentleman with history of lung cancer, and he's here for a chief complaint of rash this time. Uh, now you're able to ascertain that two months ago started uh, immunotherapy, and it's a, the rash is pretty uh, significant in terms of body surface area. It's over about a third, and you're seeing some blistering, uh, and I know blistering rash for me always gets my attention in the emergency department. So you're probably thinking about uh, whether this, you know, in a a patient with cancer, is this a skin and soft tissue infection? Is it cellulitis? Is it a necrotizing infection? Or how sick are they? Um, Is it kind of a drug-related hypersensitivity type of reaction? Or could this be immunotherapy? Uh, you know, certainly uh, we learned that the skin is an organ system that is affected by immunotherapies, and so those adverse events do uh, extend there. In terms of uh, treatment, if you do believe that it's immuno- immunotherapy-related uh, uh, skin infection or sorry, skin in, uh, dermatitis, um, for for kind of more mild. Uh, Uh, reactions. You can actually use a topical corticosteroid. Uh, You don't need to necessarily go to systemic uh, steroids. And and for some of our patients who could have um, brittle diabetes with challenging blood sugars to control, if you can avoid a course of steroids, and the steroids tend to be uh, sometimes long with a taper, and so you can imagine that patients could really get in trouble with their blood sugars uh, if they're in that scenario. So using a topical uh, agent when appropriate uh, could be great. And so low to moderate potency. My moderate potency go to is usually triamcinolone uh, topical. And so that could be a good choice for this patient. For, um, sorry, for, for the right patient. This patient has too much involvement for a topical treatment. So in this particular case, based on the greater than 30% body surface area, we're really talking about systemic steroids and hospitalization. So we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the, the way to think about uh, skin and mucous membrane involvement for, for these patients. Um, Dr. Awad, how, how do you kind of draw the line between topical and systemic treatment and then differentiating between those three uh, options that are differential between infection, just a drug hypersensitivity, and, and an IRAE? How do you think about that?
2: Yeah, cutaneous immune-related events are, are fairly um, common also with immunotherapies, particularly when they're combined with other agents. And it really um, depends on the, the patient's comfort level, on their presentation. Um, there can be a variety of uh, cutaneous manifestations, as, as you can see here from uh, the spectrum that's listed. And so it can be difficult to sort out what's going on. I think it's really important to take another uh, thorough medication history and, and make sure that Um, uh, their patient isn't taking other agents that could be potentially causing uh, cutaneous side effects or rash or a hypersensitivity reaction, Uh, vitiligo can also be seen as an immune related toxicity with immunotherapies and so here I think it depends again on the distribution if the rash is relatively uh, contained to a, a small body surface area. We can often continue the immunotherapy and treat with uh, topical steroids or oral agents um, to help manage itching. Um, but as the grade of the toxicity increases, as uh, the more and more of the body surface area is involved, we would typically hold the immune checkpoint inhibitor or, or ICI and treat with um, uh, systemic steroids, particularly if the rash is in an area that the patient can't reach or can't apply uh, feasibly a large amount of topical steroids. So um, I often, with more severe cases, do get dermatology involved, because there are uh, a difference in the uh, types of toxicity and also how we consider managing the toxicity. So there are cases when I will um, work with our dermatology colleagues to obtain a biopsy of these lesions to just help narrow down the differential in
1: management. Excellent. So- so more rarely you can actually get, uh, you know, the kind of the, the most feared skin involvement that we think about in the emergency department, more of like a an SGS-TEN picture with, you know, large surface area, Ebola skin sloughing, essentially um, thinking about the patient as a severe burn type patient. Um, this is much less common, but it is possible. and You're typically thinking about ICU or burn unit admission for these patients um, when it's that involved. Uh, uh, in addition to uh, topical, sorry, in, to a systemic corticosteroids. Have you ever seen this in one of your patients?
2: You know, I, I haven't. I haven't seen um, kind of an ICU level uh, care rash for one of my patients personally, or, or among my colleagues. But sometimes we can see more Bullis disease. Um, but uh, certainly these uh, side effects have been reported, so important to keep, keep this in mind and manage in the differential. All
1: right, we're going to do another case. So now you have a 77-year-old uh, gentleman, again with lung cancer, and uh, he's having some respiratory distress. So um, he had some sinus congestion, which to an urgent care, was given... Uh, an antibiotic course, he also, for the review of systems, is, is having a cough with some chest tightness and shortness of breath. Um, he's on uh, Coumadin and uses Albuterol, so we suspect he has something like AFib or asthma or something like that in his background as well. So he has, I'm sorry, he has VTE in his background, so that's what explains the warfarin. And, and he is on a checkpoint inhibitor. And so his exam, really notable for low-grade fever, borderline tachycardia, he's normotensive, but he has some mild respiratory distress, right? He's breathing at 24 beats per minute, has a SAT of 92, which I'm not in love with. I'd like for that to be a bit higher. I'm probably putting him on a couple of liters when so cannula. Uh, and then he has an abnormal pulmonary exam. You're hearing some RALs at the bases. Uh, and you get a, a chest X-ray as part of your initial workup. Uh, and you see a right pleural effusion and some infiltrates at the lung bases. Um, you get some basic labs. And you get a CBC, chemistry. Uh, and you notice that at H&H are down a little bit, but maybe not acutely down. That you are just kind of right a little bit low at baseline. And otherwise, uh, normal labs. And so you're thinking about what this could be. An infection is probably towards the, the top of your list, uh, given that he was diagnosed with an infection a week previously. And has a low-grade fever, some respiratory distress, and you're seeing infiltrates on a chest X-ray. Certainly, in today's day and age, COVID could be uh, in the differential. So you're probably swabbing this patient, having him on precautions while that is cooking. Uh, and then certainly progression of disease, PE, uh, and then immune-related pneumonitis probably be um, uh, rounding out a, a differential. And so. You know, I, I mentioned some of the, the next steps here. This is certainly uh, some, a patient who you would be thinking about a sepsis bundle in. So you'd be thinking about getting cultures, maybe checking a lactate, um, and uh, you know, doing a bedside ultrasound to check uh, fluid status, look at his IVC, uh, look at his heart to make sure he doesn't have a pericardial effusion. It would be a great kind of point of care ultrasound case if you have that available in your shop. Um, and then giving early antibiotics. This is, could be like a cefepime or a vinc-cefepime type patient while you're trying to collect more information. And ultimately, um, a CT of the chest could be helpful, especially if uh, PE is on your differential. So you're probably getting a, a CTA, especially if the, the, the INR that you check for the patient on Coumadin is uh, a little low. And so you get the chest CT, and it shows uh, what we see there in the, in the in the illustration, it's ground glass opacities. Uh, he does have that right sided large pleural effusion that we saw on the chest x ray, but that effusion's kind of been there for a while. If you look back at some clinic x rays, whatnot, it's, it's really chronic. And so we'll look a little bit at the variability that you might expect to see on CT scan uh, from immune uh, mediated uh, pneumonitis. Uh, Dr. Awad, any any thoughts on kind of how to interpret these images or um, is it typically ground glass opacity is like the the key thing you're looking for in like the radiologist's read when you're thinking about pneumonitis versus uh, consolidated pneumonia or some other process that would be competing with that in your differential?
2: Yeah, this is also a very tricky uh, immune-related adverse event to to recognize and and, uh, to initiate management. And the reason why it's so important to uh, keep this on the differential is because Um, Some of these IRAEs can be fatal and among those that are most feared uh, for these medications is pneumonitis because it it can proceed and progress quickly and it it can result in a rapid clinical deterioration. Um, I'm a thoracic oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and so this patient is uh, very typical of uh, individuals that I see in my clinic. Uh, Many patients uh, might have some background of COPD, they may have a chronic cough, some chronic dyspnea. Perhaps they had a lobectomy to manage early lung cancer prior to the recurrence, um, and they might normally have an O2 SAT of about 92%. So, a patient with this presentation um, can be difficult because the symptoms and signs can overlap with many other uh, common um, uh, issues, such as pneumonia or, or COPD flares. So, it's um, again important to have a low threshold to suspect. Uh, pneumonitis from immunotherapy and to get imaging. And the other tricky piece is that the imaging uh, can be quite variable and heterogeneous, as is illustrated here. So I would say that uh, ground glass opacities, um, often bilateral, but it it doesn't have to be a bilateral process, it can be unilateral, um, are are perhaps more common, but it can very much look like a consolidated pneumonia. It can also look somewhat patchy and discontinuous. It can be more solid, more ground glass, uh, more central or peripheral. So I think um, it, it, is, it is difficult, and I think it's important, again, to have um, a really high index of sus- suspicion for patients on immunotherapy who are presenting with uh, respiratory symptoms to think about pneumonitis.
1: So you talk with the oncologist, so we have a conversation. We talk about this patient on immunotherapy. We're talking about the, the ground glass opacity that we see on the chest CT. And so I probably already have given antibiotics by the time we're having the conversation. Um, but g- given the uh, new oxygen requirement and, and what we're seeing on the scan, uh, we're going to be admitting to the hospital. And probably the key piece of the of the conversation that we're having is around uh, initiation of steroids while the patient's still in the emergency department. Just because pneumonitis is uh, is so highly suspected in this. Particular clinical presentation, and that's really something that uh, before I learned a lot more about uh, this diagnosis, that was not part of my routine diagnosis. Uh, my routine, routine ED treatment of patients with cancer coming in with, uh, with this type of finding on on CT. Certainly, when I was going through my emergency medicine training, um, you know, 15 years ago, this class of medication really wasn't used, and so this was this is all new since graduating residency. With some of the importance of keeping up with new information and integrating that into your clinical practice. So let me just pause on this slide for a moment in terms of grading and and kind of treatment for uh, for pneumonitis. Um, Anything we haven't touched on that could be important to highlight in this slide?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think um, we'll provide these slides as a reference in terms of the initial management, but you can see here how do we think about the grading and severity and the initial um, work up just to rule out other uh, infectious causes and to initiate uh, steroids uh, early uh, once this
1: is recognized. So, so we'll move on. Uh, we have a couple more cases in about 13 more minutes to wrap up this session. So, uh, so this is a woman who's 72. She has lymphoma and she's here with uh, GI distress, right? So she's having. Some nausea, some crampy belly pain, uh, increased gas, and some uh, non-bloody diarrhea. Um, Meds include ACE inhibitors, some oxycodone for some cancer pain, um, a a bowel regimen, and then she is on immunotherapies. Um, Go ahead to what her physical exam looks like. So, uh, you know, kind of unremarkable vital signs. Uh, She she looks. Kind of awake and alert, but she looks dry. Uh, you can see her mucous membranes are dry. She looks a little bit pale. Um, and so she has mild diffuse tenderness in her belly. It's certainly not peritoneal, but she's kind of uncomfortable all over. And she has some hyperactive bowel sounds. So in your differential, certainly um, thinking about um, different types of GI infections, uh, from viral to, um, to bacterial. Certainly C. diff could be in the differential. Um, but then thinking about other you know, cancer-related uh, uh, diagnoses that for this presentation, particularly immune-mediated colitis, based on the topic of this talk. Um, so you you know, if she's able to produce a still sample while in the emergency department, you might send that for C. diff and OVA parasites, etc. So, given you know diffuse belly tenderness in an older patient, you're gonna get a belly CT, and it shows um, so, thickening of the colonic wall, some pericolonic stranding. Uh, so, basically, a colitis uh, is what you're seeing here. And the lab count shows a little bump in her white count uh, with hyponatremia, mild hyperkalemia, otherwise normal. And so, uh, so we think so, this is actually uh, immunotherapy related colitis, which Again, uh, steroids is going to be what you're going to start in the emergency department, as well as repleting her fluid losses by giving her hydration. Um, and depending on the severity of the hyponatremia or hyperkalemia, you might treat appropriately there, too. right? So if her sodium is you know, 118, you might be consulting the, the renal team to talk about um, different treatments related to that. And so uh, again, um, you know, in terms of what other results you might need before starting the steroids, if you have the CT scan in the labs, um, you can go ahead and start them. If it's, if it's a very mild presentation, someone there with more like nuisance diarrhea, not very dehydrated, you may not necessarily um, uh, need steroids uh, or, or you, you might not need to, to do systemic corticosteroids. So we'll talk a little bit about colitis now. Um, you know, in, in, the, in a younger patient who's not on immunotherapy, a lot of times this is viral colitis that you just do with, uh, supportive care on, hydration, electrolyte repletion, and you send them home. But this not—that's not this patient. This patient actually needs steroids. Any other pearls from this sometimes slide? Sometimes the question comes up: Do we need to get a colonoscopy
2: first to make this diagnosis? And I think if we've ruled out basic uh, infection. Um, If the imaging is consistent with colitis, we can often initiate steroids uh, without, uh, per se, proceeding with endoscopic evaluation. I think if the diarrhea persists or the colitis doesn't get better on steroids, then we might consider uh, an additional workup, such as a a colonoscopy or a flex uh, sig. But usually, we can start steroids, and this often gets better quite quickly.
1: Right, so moving on to case Five. we have a 78-year-old gentleman with skin cancer here with headache and altered mental status. So this is headache, fever, confusion, neck stiffness. So this is screaming with like meningitis until proven otherwise. Um, they are on an immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, history of AFib and hypertension as well. Uh, on the vital signs, has a low-grade fever, but uh, heart rate and blood pressure look OK. And the patient looks sick. They're lethargic. They're confused. Normal pulmonary exam, kind of diffusely weak. You'd say four out of five, but non-focal in upper and lower extremities. And so um, certainly thinking about infection, again, being kind of number one on, on the differential. So this is someone who you don't delay you know, meningitis dose uh, antibiotics. You're going to go ahead to get uh, neuroimaging. You're going to get a lumbar puncture. Uh, as well as a kind of a more broad fever workup, and you're going to speak with the oncologist. And so, the LP shows uh, um, elevated white count with a lymphocytic predominance, but the gram stain's negative and the glucose and protein slightly elevated. Um, and you get, you're able to get an MRI, and it showed some unilateral temporal enhancement. And so, this is actually going to be immune related encephalitis as the diagnosis. Um, and so, um, it could be a variable clinical presentation uh, as well. And you expect to see kind of an inflammatory CSF. So, that CSF is not concerning for bacterial meningitis. It was absolutely uh, the right thing to do to get the LP, though. And so, Again, you know, take home message, uh, this patient needs uh, steroids. You certainly should not withhold uh, the antibiotics that you would normally give for encephalitis. And then also uh, something like IV acyclovir, antiviral therapy, uh, thinking about other causes of encephalitis, and the viral causes would be necessary as well. And you're going to be keeping this patient, and depending on how sick they are, uh, you might need to put them in your ICU. So this just highlights the neurologic uh, presentation for uh, immunotherapy-related adverse events. Um, so in terms of signs and symptoms, kind of a lot of a great kind of deal, a variety of neurologic presentation symptoms, everything from you know, gait and memory difficulty to, to full-on seizure, more encephalopathic presentation. Um, You may be pulling a neurologist into consult on these patients, especially if they have focal neurologic findings. Um, And then, uh, again, you're going to be thinking about uh, steroids for these patients. MRI could be very helpful. And this is probably a patient you're not waiting a day or two to get an MRI. It's when you're probably getting an MRI as part of the initial workup or transferring the patient with a plan to get an MRI at their destination. So I'll go back one slide. Uh, Dr. Awad, any other thoughts on the neurologic presentation?
2: Yeah, I think um, I've seen this for for my patients, and this is uh, uncommon. It's rare, but um, very important, again, to recognize. I think in our patient population, of course, we're concerned about brain metastases, leptomeningeal disease. Some of these immune-related adverse events are diagnoses of exclusion. So it's important, again, to look for other things. But um, patients can get uh, much better very quickly on steroids. So good, good to keep this in the differential. Excellent.
1: And I think this is our last case. And then we're going to go to wrap up. So this is a 61-year-old uh, gentleman uh, with lung cancer, pretty advanced lung cancer, um, history of VTE. And they're here with uh, shortness of breath, muscle aches, and generalized weakness, fatigue. And they are on immunotherapy as well as on a blood thinner on an oxoparin. And so uh, on their physical exam, you can see that they're tachycardic with soft blood pressure with some moderate respiratory distress, breathing at 28 beats per minute with a SAT of 92%. Um, You you hear some decreased breath sounds on the right side. And the heart sounds are also diminished. And so you get labs, um, and what you see is uh, initial troponin, I guess, based on what your assay cutoff is, looks okay, but there's an elevated CK and LFTs, lactate is significantly elevated, Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to correct myself. The troponin of 0.08 is likely pathologic based on almost any uh, cut point. Usually for a conventional troponin, about 0.01 to 0.03 is the cut point, so that's going to be a multiple of that. Uh, and you see an a lactate that's remarkably elevated, and then a, a mild leukocytosis. The hemoglobin looks OK. Uh, on the chest x-ray, you can see the cardiac silhouette looks quite large. It's about 60% of the intercardi- int- intrathoracic distance. Uh, and you see an EKG there that has a lot of ectopy. Um, and so uh, you actually end up getting uh, see an echo uh, that has a large Pericardial effusion, Um, and and the EKG also has uh, pulsus alternand. So, you know, the effusion is large enough to where the heart is kind of swinging in that pocket of fluid. And you see a CT scan cross section in the upper right there. And so, uh, this is a patient with tachycardia to 130, with a blood pressure of 90 and a huge pericardial effusion. Um, You're thinking, could that be a hemorrhagic effusion? Could it be inflammatory? Um, Regardless, they're probably going to need a drain placed or pericardiocentesis based on the the physiology there. Um, And then uh, you're also going to be worried about uh, myocarditis in this patient as well based on shortness of breath. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about cardiac-related IRAs here.
2: And, and so this is another
1: rare toxicity,
2: but can be fatal if uh, if not recognized and managed early and can often be steroid refractory. Um, it's thought that there can be some common antigen between the, the cancer and the um, myocardial tissue of the heart. And so you can see immune infiltrates here in this example um, uh, interspersed within the cardiac myocytes here. And so again, you can see the different uh, gradings for how we manage cardiac toxicities, but Uh, Because this can be um, life-threatening if not detected early, it's really, again, uh, important to keep this in in the differential and potentially manage the patient um, quite early. And so this patient um, was eventually diagnosed with checkpoint inhibitor-related myocarditis and myositis and was treated initially with one milligram um, of uh, bethylprednisolone daily uh, with uh, gradual improvement in, in their symptoms. And again, important um, to think about this in the differential to use some of the diagnostic evaluation to categorize the likelihood of, of myocarditis and to consider a myocardial, endomyocardial biopsy as needed if the differential is unclear. And we've discussed um, how this patient um, was managed uh, initially with immunosuppression.
1: All right. So this is kind of the a take-home slide around what you should take from this hour we've spent together is, you know, eliciting a cancer treatment history in a patient with cancer is going to be very important. And that goes uh, all the way back to a year or longer previous to the presentation around medications they might have uh, been on previously and have since stopped because we know that these events can actually happen months or less commonly even years after. Uh, treatment. And so it's important to tease that out of your of your patients. Uh, another key thing is you know, for patients with active cancer, you're seeing the emergency department who are sick enough to be hospitalized or you're not sure what's going on with them. Having that call made to the primary outpatient oncologist to discuss the presentation is going to be very important because you're likely going to collaboratively um, come to this suspicion or confirmed diagnosis of an immune-related adverse event. And then the idea of starting corticosteroids in those patients who have a severe enough grading to warrant that is going to be a key decision point that you 're going to need to agree on. Uh, let me move forward a little bit. so I put up that previous website, uh, and that 's going to have some the slide deck as well as some kind of uh, practice aids and some um, summary slides that will be very helpful for you to you know, to to kind of come back and and look at later to, as a refresher, or share with colleagues. Let's see here. Here's a question. What percentage of patients on immune checkpoint inhibitors get adverse events? So uh, Dr. Awad probably is best to answer that one.
2: Yeah, that's a good question, and it in part depends on whether they're on combination therapies or single-agent immunotherapies. I would say some degree of immune side effects happen in maybe a fifth or a quarter of patients, um, most of which are low-grade or or, or fairly uh, straightforward to manage. But in terms of the patients who get the higher-grade toxicities, I would say that can be uh, probably 10% or less, the very serious or life-threatening toxicities, are more in the one to two percent range.
1: Excellent. We have a follow-up here is, how long should a patient be on steroids before we can judge that they're not improving and we need to start infliximab instead?
2: That, that's a really good question, and um, it, it depends in part on the uh, organ system involved. I think um, many patients will start to be uh, to feel better within days of starting corticosteroids, but depending on the symptom, it may take longer. So I think uh, that is a good topic to discuss with some of our subspecialty colleagues. For example, if you're managing pneumonitis or myocarditis, it kind of depends on the patient's clinical course. If they're uh, stable or if they're deteriorating, you may want to escalate your immunosuppressive therapy uh, sooner in some patients or give time for steroids to work in others.
1: And for those of us who work in the emergency department, it's highly unlikely that we're going to be starting infliximab on the patients who are making a new diagnosis of an IRAE. We're, we're going to be starting their corticosteroids. Um, we want to give those corticosteroids some time to work. I suppose there could be a scenario where someone had a mild IRAE was started on corticosteroids and it, out of the hospital setting and is now presenting with kind of a, a worsening clinical course. And then that conversation with the oncologist prompts uh, escalation in therapy while the patient's still in the emergency department. That's right. Okay. Uh, next question is, can steroids be used for prophylaxis of immunotherapy-related adverse events in patients with cancer uh, um, who are on immunotherapies and are at high risk?
2: That's an interesting question. You know, we we don't have a good way now to predict which patients will or won't get immune-related adverse events. So currently, there is no role for prophylactic steroid administration for patients um, treated with immunotherapies, we don't yet have a tool to categorize uh, high versus low risk of developing immune-related adverse events. I think one question that comes up is, if we give steroids, are we going to negate the efficacy of immunotherapy, are we going to blunt the effectiveness of the immunotherapy treatment and uh, impair the patient's cancer therapy? What we've seen from retrospective analyses typically is patients who do need steroids, um, it doesn't seem to impact the effectiveness of their anti-cancer therapies. So that's why we don't necessarily want to hold back or or delay the initiation of immunosuppression uh, out of that concern. We do know that if patients are on some degree of immunosuppression for some other unrelated uh, reason, say some autoimmune disorder, at the time that they initiate immunotherapy, it's fine and it, it, it's okay for those patients to continue on their immunosuppressive regimen. And, and often in that setting, the immunotherapy can still be effective even though they're on some degree of immunosuppressive uh, therapy.
1: And another question here is, are there risk ratification criteria that can be used to, uh, for a cancer patient on immunotherapies um, for admission through the emergency department? And I suppose i go to the grading system um, as probably being one of the things that would guide a um, uh, uh, kind of disposition, as well as what organ system we're dealing with. You know, if it's the heart or the brain, you, you have a, probably a much lower threshold to keep that patient versus a more kind of a, a lower grade, say, skin manifestation. Um, there might be other factors that we consider in the emergency department um, that, that would um, keep a patient, such as... Um, kind of, if a cancer patient just drove four hours to to come, and they have a pretty mild uh, grade, and, and um, but are uncomfortable going home or managing themselves, have maybe a barrier to following up in clinic that might push us to keep someone for a brief hospitalization.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I think uh, factoring in how they look, the severity of their illness, some of the um, psychosocial factors as well.
1: Great. So maybe i 'll go for one more question. so um, I guess the question here is how do you recognize that uh, the complication we encounter in the ED is from immunotherapy um, and, and I suppose you know we saw a differential diagnosis for all of our cases that had other life threats or conditions that we absolutely have to consider in the emergency department and roll out to some degree with testing. So for encephalitis patient, we had to do an LP and rule out um, infectious uh, meningitis. So I think the standard kind of approach to working through an emergency department differential diagnosis is, is still in effect for these patients with cancer on immunotherapies. I think the key takeaway from this lesson is to include these organ system dysfunction effects in the differential diagnosis such that if you don't identify an alternative obvious cause um, that you are coming back to that as a potential uh, diagnosis and having that back and forth communication with the oncologist around how much to suspect it and whether we suspect it enough to initiate corticosteroids as part of the overall hospitalization plan
2: yeah a lot of these immune related adverse events are diagnoses of exclusion so it's really important first to determine Could they have a viral infection, a bacterial infection? Could they have cancer progression and that's why they're uh, feeling more short of breath or they have headaches? Um, And some of the evaluation and those results will come back in the timeframe that the patient has been um, being worked up and evaluated. In the ED, other uh, results will come back perhaps after the patient is admitted to the hospital. Um, before the uh, kind of diagnosis centers around a, an immune-related adverse event. So depending on how long the patient um, is being evaluated in the emergency department, what lab results have already come back or what evaluations have already been done, um, sometimes in discussion with the oncologist or with um, any uh, consulting physicians, you can make a diagnosis within the time frame that the patient's in the emergency department and initiate steroids at that time. Excellent.
0: This activity is accredited by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash kkf860. This activity is supported through independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck & Company Incorporated.